Hello and welcome to the St Mungo's podcast. This is episode 41 and for the next three episodes we'll be discussing HIV and sexual health with Rebecca Metcalf who's a consultant in sexual health in Glasgow. So let's just jump right in. So look, let's start with HIV. Let's get the big one out of the way, if you don't mind. So probably lots to talk about. Um, but like, do you mind if we just start with the real basics? Can you kind of summarise where we are generally with HIV? Because I know a lot has changed in the past 20 years. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you're absolutely right. A lot of things have changed in the last 20 years with HIV. And I think one of the most important things to say is that although... HIV is still here and we are still seeing new infections that we are in a really good place when it comes to treatment. So we've got a, a range of treatments that, that to treat HIV, all of them tablet-based at the minute. The majority of people, that can be one tablet. It does need to be taken every single day. But when a person takes a tablet, the, the HIV virus is completely suppressed. And that means that it doesn't affect their health, it won't affect them long term, and most importantly as well, they won't be able to pass on the virus through sex, which is a really important uh, thing for for a lot of people, but also for stigma, and that's what we're really trying to tackle at the minute. Other things in the pipeline are different modes of delivering tab- uh, the made it medication to people, because a lot of people find it difficult to take a tablet every day, and that's really exciting. And it is well. lifelong, is that right? It is lifelong. We don't have a cure for HIV at the minute. Uh, although there's always research going on to that, but at the minute it is lifelong. Um, we we know lots more about the best time to start treatment and what treatments to use. So um, we know that it's best for someone to start treatment as early as possible, as long as it's the right time for them. And we've got lots of different combinations that we can make sure um, that that person is on the right combination treatment for them. And that's a lot of the things that we'll discuss in clinic. And what, so what are the big differences between the medicines and what, what, what are the choices to make when, when deciding which is the most appropriate? So some of it is based on, on the actual virus and, and we will advise the patient on that. So we do some tests on the virus to check for resistance to certain types of medications. And then other things are based on um, so really sort of side effects or adverse effects of the tablets so some of them will have um, maybe have to be taken at a certain time or some of them may interact with other medications that a person is on for other for other um, illnesses or some of them may have slightly more likely to cause some side effects that that may not be acceptable to that person. So if started on treatment so if diagnosed and started on treatment it's no longer really a life-limiting disease anymore is it I mean oh, life expectancy is is the same absolutely and and that's one of the messages that we really try and get out to people when they're diagnosed but also just to educate people on HIV it's not a life um changing diagnosis in in the fact that it will impact them medically um as long as they do engage with care and take medication obviously if people struggle psychologically with the diagnosis and aren't able to engage in care that's when the real challenges come but we are we we hope to support people and to help them through that. So I would say over the last 10 years or so, as I've been working in A&E, y- y- you see the odd case now and again, but really, it, it, but then there was a bit of an explosion recently. Now HIV's come back into our kind of um, uh, much more prevalent in, in A&E. Why is that? So something happened in Glasgow specifically recently. So, and, and it is Glasgow specifically, and I think that's really important because overall, um, uh, as a country, we've seen a decrease in HIV transmissions, and that's to do with a lot of prevention measures, which we can talk about. Um, one of the the biggest groups who were acquiring HIV before were men who have sex with men, and we have seen a huge decrease in that, especially in um, some of the bigger cities like London and Brighton. 
And we saw a decrease in Scotland as well. Unfortunately, over the last five years in Glasgow, we've seen an increase in transmissions and new diagnosis amongst a different group. And this is people who are injecting drugs or people are having sex with those who inject drugs. They have a very similar demographic in that they most of them have frequented Glasgow city centre and there's um, associations with an increase in cocaine use which we've seen in Glasgow over recent years as opposed to traditionally it was mostly heroin uh, and also a, a, an association with being homeless and living in the city centre. So I don't know it might just be me but can I ask what, what, what why why has it come back? I, I understand the, the the demographic that it's kind of more kind of um, prevalent in right now. But what was the reason for it coming back? Was it introduced back into the community? Was it always there in the community, and now it's just being shared more? Are they? They're obviously a chaotic uh, kind of lifestyles that that can go untreated for long periods of time. I guess does that fully explain it, or is there more to it than that? So it. I think you've highlighted that it is really complex and there's probably lots of different reasons why we've ended up with one of the biggest HIV outbreaks in a very long time here in Glasgow. Um, it's complex in that uh, traditionally, so before this, we probably, you've alluded to, didn't start HIV treatment as quickly in this group because there was a reluctance to prescribe medication if they may not have been adherent to it because there's always a risk of um viral resistance uh, and if someone isn't attending the traditional service which for us was is a couple of miles away then they're, they're less likely to receive medications regularly so that so those people you're right wouldn't have been on treatment and we know as I've said before that treatment and decreasing the viral load can prevent onward transmission so that's certainly one aspect. Other things um, are what we would call sort of prevention measures so re- frequent HIV testing in these groups know that shows that um, we can decrease onward transmission by diagnosing people early and getting them into services early. Um, and that certainly wasn't happening in the key services that we would hope for. The We're really lucky in Glasgow um, in that we've got free and very wide-ranging provision of um, injecting equipment. And despite that, people were sharing needles. And the, in the association with cocaine, we think it's because with cocaine as opposed to heroin, you inject much more frequently. So um, you would need to go to a, an IEP site and get much more equipment to have to, to when you're using cocaine as opposed to heroin, slightly differently. Uh, I suppose another aspect of that is is the addiction services. And again, we we have great drug treatment services here in Glasgow, but as with everything, um, everyone's felt the pressures and resource pressures um, and so, you know, accessing that can be difficult. So when did you first identify the outbreak? Was it, You mentioned five years. Yeah. Was that, what, how was it, what were the steps that, that it was discovered? So we've got a really good system for um, uh, chasing results, HIV positive results in Glasgow, uh, which is another reason why I would tell everybody to test because a positive result goes through this, what's called the shared care team at Sandyford. Uh, so all results are notified to them and help people find find the person give them their diagnosis so when the results go from virology lab through to them it was noted that there's an increase in this particular group before this before 2014 it was about 10 diagnoses per year in people who inject drugs in Glasgow and that's been pretty steady for a long time due to high levels of drug treatment and good needle exchange services um we noticed uh Public health were alerted early 2015 that there'd been an increase. But actually, when we look back, it was probably mid-2014 that we really saw the numbers increasing. 
And um, so that was, as I said, about five years ago now. Um, and it's been pretty high numbers ever since. And so tell me how you've been tackling it, because we were involved in ED. Mm-hmm. I remember we've been asked to test a lot more frequently than we would ever have done before. So talk us through that those that maybe aren't as familiar with it, what 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 steps were taken um, to, to kind of counter this? So again, because it is complex, there's been steps by a number of services and, and that HIV, increasing HIV testing is absolutely key and um, we still need to do that ongoing and I think that cannot be ignored. Um, so increasing HIV testing in, in ED services and Glasgow Royal ED is, is really important because it's right in the middle of where, where this is happening, but also in other services. So anywhere where people present for drug treatment or for opiate um or cocaine uh, therapy, and also in needle exchange services where people are presenting to get needles and syringes and water. Um, from other, so and other services, so education to people working with um, service users and to the service users themselves, so that involves a lot of third sector groups, so Scottish Drugs Forum, Waverly Care, um, we've got a really good harm reduction team who are trying to promote the message of not sharing needles, because obviously needles and sharing water or any equipment that's really what it comes down to and also about using condoms and, and educating people about sexual risk because that's something that people didn't always know about as well from a clinical point of view um, we've completely changed the service that we have for these people which has been led by Dr uh, Erica Peters and that I think has really been really key in how, how we've managed this we know that this group are so vulnerable that Going a couple of miles to the, to the West End to, to access HIV treatment is just not on their pri- priority list. And so our traditional model of care where you had to turn up at a certain time and sit in a waiting room and go to pharmacy and collect your medications was just not working for them. So about three years ago, we had a we had got some money for a nurse who goes out and finds people wherever they may be, hostels, um, on the streets, um, and engages them in care and then two years ago we set up uh, an outreach clinic it, well an in-reach clinic within the um, homeless health services and, and that's a weekly re- run between ID and gum consultants where we provide full BBV care including hepatitis C treatment as well and um, a full sexual and reproductive health service and a full um, infection soft tissue service as well. So it must be pretty hard to administer lifelong treatment to someone living a chaotic lifestyle and it's a daily medicine what's the what's the 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 least impactful way to do that to 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 the homeless so what we're hoping for in the long term is that injectables will will come in and it is in the pipeline and that would be ideal but we've got again a fantastic system that we've set up in glasgow it's been about running about three years now and i think this is really the crux of it to be honest is we've um engage with the community pharmacy team because the majority of these patients will be at some point um, on opiate replacement and that will be daily supervised in the pharmacy. So we've started to administer antiretrovirals through the pharmacies. So when they go along to get their methadone, they also get their tablet as well. And um, that has shown a huge huge um, difference for us. We've managed to show recently that over 80% of the population now at any one time have got a viral load less than 200, so are virally suppressed, which is just pretty phenomenal in this group. So let's, um, the majority of our audience are emergency kind mm-hmm. of focus. So so let's talk about the impact on ED. What What's the advice? So say I or we are in ED right now and there is a patient, for whatever reason they've arrived, they've told us that they are an injector of mm-hmm. possibly cocaine and or um, opiates. 
but they're in for a separate reason. What, what's what's the advice? How would you approach that patient? What would you do? So my number one piece of advice would be please do an HIV test uh, because that's one of the things that we see and notice is that they do use ED services more than any other service. Um, and as you've alluded to, it could be for a number of reasons. It could be a sore leg, a blood clot, could be for overdose or unknown, just found confused. Um, and any the earlier we can get an HIV test, the better. And we can put um, lots of support and clinical care into place. So my number one would be please do an HIV test. And I appreciate that's difficult. And I know that there is a lot of um, concern sometimes about consenting for HIV tests or about who's going to deal with the result. Um, I would say that there's no downside to doing an HIV test because if it comes back negative, that's great. Then the patient is reassured. If it comes back positive, then then we can inform that patient sooner rather than later and get them on treatment. So who should get tested? Is it someone who is homeless? Is it someone who is homeless and injecting? Is it what 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 are the kind of stipulations or, or the requirements? So and, and I appreciate this is a, a wider audience as well. So in Glasgow, in the city centre where, where Glasgow Royal is at the minute, in our um in anyone who, who's injecting drugs, not necessarily homeless, the prevalence is close to eleven percent. That's really, really high. Um and we would suggest that anyone who's giving any indication of um of drug use, particularly injecting, should be offered a test, unless they've had a very recent test, and by that I mean at least a month. In the wider um, kind of national situation, uh, obviously the prevalence isn't that high, but the risk is still there. Um, And so I would say that anyone who is is injecting drugs are given any risk, because remember, we can talk about sexual risk as well, but any sort of risk of of a transmission of a BBV is worth doing a test. And you may pick up hepatitis C uh, and get that person into hepatitis C treatment care. So just thinking that emergency is not a very, very in-depth, you know, full history. And, you know, we've got a short space of time with the patient. Um, What what would be the essentials you would ask and say to a patient um, prior to gaining consent? So, um... I suppose you probably do get a fair idea depending on what they've presented with. So the questions would be, have you um, injected any drugs in the last, however long, six months, say? Um, And if they've never had a BBV test, then if they've ever injected drugs, that should be done. Um, The other question could be, have you had an HIV, hepatitis C test? Although people sometimes think they have and they haven't. Uh, And of course, sometimes if they get it done elsewhere, it isn't always on your computer system that's available if that answer is yes i would please send a test um and that's all you really need to know have you injected drugs yeah i take it you have to gain consent presumably so i mean i think you have to gain consent for any yeah yeah Yeah. would would it matter if they said no you would have to accept that there's you you can't kind of forcibly not not forcibly that that's not what i mean but you know, say you were taking a bunch of bloods for another reason and just slipped it in there without saying, or is that wrong? Is it essential to 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 gain that formal consent? And what would you do if they said no? Just have yeah. to accept that. I mean, it's it's never ideal, but I think it's also, as I said, a lot of people think when they're getting bloods, they're getting the whole set taken, whatever that means. Um, it's better to tell people you're taking bloods for everything. So I'm going to check your blood count. I'm going to check your liver, your kidneys, your blood sugar. And I'm going to do an HIV test. Is that okay? And that's fine. If someone said no, um, I would be tempted just to very quickly. Why is that? Are you concerned? Because 
it's actually people who refuse an HIV test that I'd be more worried about because do they think they're at risk and they're ignoring it? And actually they're the ones who who who, who will um, be negatively impacted by HIV because we don't know about them. Um, so if someone said, no, just a couple of seconds, why is that? It's just a, a, an easy blood test. If if it comes back positive, you will be fully supported or, or is there a reason why you don't want a test? And then what happens afterwards? So we do the test and is it you follow it up or your team? Yeah, yeah. So and that is a, a really important message that I'd like to get out to ED. And obviously I can't speak for other health boards, but within Glasgow, don't worry about chasing the result. All positive tests come through the shared care team at Sandyford. Um, and that's the same for all STIs as well and, um, and other bloodborne viruses, hepatitis B and hepatitis C is slightly different, but... Um, uh, and the team there will will follow up. So we will get a um, a notification of the result and a special team at Sandyford will identify who took the test. And if it was ED, they don't contact you. We just have another team who will try and find the person. And then what are your powers at the other end? So you find a positive test. You can't forcibly enforce treatment on a patient can you? I mean, I, I doubt many are going to say no, but in terms of chaotic lifestyle and identifying others at risk around that person, what, 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 you know, if they don't want to engage a lot, what, what, what are your, what are your kind of legal rights or powers? Or? So we, um, so I suppose our powers are that we have developed a very effective outreach clinical team. And that includes, as I said, led by two consultants, but also, um, Bloodborne virus clinical specialist nurse, but also um, sexual health and HIV health advisors. So we also have really good links with the addiction services and we've built up lots of good links with third sector services. So we have never not been able to find someone. And when we do find them, it's about setting them down and educating and um, having discussion with them. And very, very rarely do they back away and not engage. Um, the majority of people will and Honestly, most people say, right, great, give me treatment now because they do care about their health. It's just that they unfortunately are struggling from other issues, addiction issues, that they can't prioritise their health. Um, and then we make that as easy as possible to do that via community dispensing, via outreach work or having a, a clinic in the city centre that they can basically drop into on a Wednesday. Okay, so we need to stress that this is primarily for Glasgow. We don't want everyone in EDs all around the UK and beyond starting to, to test HIV on everyone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Although you might think that's a good idea. Yeah. But probably discuss it with your team locally. Um, but what would your advice be to other cities? Presumably this risk could go, could be the same in Manchester, London, wherever you are. I mean, this this type of thing could happen there. W would you have any advice for them to avoid that happening or yes don't get don't get complacent don't think oh it just happens in Glasgow um because that is not the case there there have been a recent s small surge of cases in Birmingham as well and um my advice would be just keep up the prevention messages so HIV testing is key and don't forget about that in the uh, drug treatment services in places that are providing needle exchange um, and don't forget about other prevention messages in this group as well treatment is prevention so offering everyone which the guidelines say we should HIV treatment regardless of of your perception of what their adherence might be like because actually people are pretty good at taking medication if you if you give them ways in which they can do that okay well I was going to just broadly talk about some of the preventative 
treatments. Mm-hmm. I guess, well, I was going to talk about PrEP yep. first. Um, I wouldn't say I know, you know, about it in great detail. So I was hoping maybe you'd run through the basics for me. And I guess that follows on nicely from what we've just been speaking about. Is that something that you've been giving to certain high-risk individuals in, in, in Glasgow? Yeah, so um, PrEP is pre-exposure prophylaxis and it has been shown in quite a few um, situations now to prevent the acquisition of HIV um, through sex. So in, um, in the, the, when I talk about PrEP, the one that's commonly used in practice as opposed to in trials is a tablet. So it's a, a combination tablet of two drugs that we already use to treat HIV. Uh, and it's a small blue tablet. It's got tenofovir and emtricitabine in it. And um, it has been shown in trials in both um, heterosexual couples and MSM, men who have sex with men, to prevent the acquisition of HIV. So Scotland was actually one of the first countries to provide PrEP for th- free on the NHS, and we're now over two years into that now. Uh, the majority of people who receive PrEP are MSM through the sexual health services. Um, and it can be taken in a number of ways, but essentially it has to be taken around the time of, of sex or every day. Um Heterosexual couples, it needs to be taken every day. So it's a tablet that needs to be taken every day. Um, and that is a minority of people who have been receiving it in, in Scotland. But yes, I have been using it in this group. So it does have an impact on on, on drug-injected transmission. Is that fair? Uh, no, we don't know. Is that There's only been one, one trial, which um, was a, a Thai study, Within with it with parental transmission of of HIV, but it's not really that strong because there was other measures in place that you know, like like um, free provision of of equipment to uh, make up drugs and share drugs. So, um, no, essentially, and the the license and the approval at the minute is just for sexual transmission. So that does put some limits on it. Um, there are, there are some studies ongoing about using oral prep in people who inject drugs but um it's really focusing on the adherence of it so why would you choose it over standard forms of contraception you know for example men with men and is it they don't have access to condoms or they tend to not want to use condoms or what what would be the choice to decide that's a better option so i don't think it's a it's a better option it's a it's a it's on top of so it's a safety net it's another option we've had condoms around for a very long time and unfortunately HIV transmissions um, numbers were increasing and we have got this other tool which can can stop that which is amazing um, I wouldn't say that it's changed people's opinions of using condoms and um, if they if they weren't using them before they're still not going to use them now so the prep is that extra um, safety net, if you like, to to stop the acquisition of HIV. Is there many side effects from taking it? So it's fairly tolerated. It's it's pretty well tolerated. Yeah, I mean, one of the main things that we worry about as clinicians is that um, it can affect kidneys a bit. So we do we do monitor that, and if people have poor renal function for other reasons uh, prior to starting on prep, we're we're a bit cautious. Um, but from a side effect point of view, most people tolerate it very well. So you mentioned it's free in the NHS. Whose decision is it for it to be started? Is it a patient choice? Can the patient go, I'd like to start taking it because I've heard? Or does it have to be diagnosed by, or prescribed, sorry, by a doctor? Or how, how does it typically So it's work? all pr- um, provided through sexual health services. So um, uh, a, doc- a 
yes, a doctor or a nurse prescriber, but specialist in, in sexual health. Um, and there are strict criteria that have been set in place by um, by experts in the field in Scotland. Um, in England and Wales, it's a trial that you need to get into. Um, and in other countries, things vary. But essentially, there's certain criteria um, that somebody should fulfil. And, and that that is because that equates to that person's risk of HIV and that's what I try and tell a patient who because they do come forward and inquire about it because they've heard um and it's not about denying that person prep but it's about actually if you don't fit those criteria it's because your risk of acquiring HIV as we sit here today isn't high enough to justify giving you medication does it possibly encourage risky sexual behavior are there people that would go well I don't want to use condoms because I'm now taking this drug um, have you noticed that or does that tend not to happen? No, I think most people working in sexual health would say that people don't make that choice. They probably weren't using condoms before anyway, but we're just ignoring the risks. Um, and so this is just an extra layer to help them stop acquiring HIV. So many, many thanks to Rebecca Metcalf and you'll be hearing more from her over the next couple of episodes. So I think my main take-home points from today are, number one, there have been incredible advances in treatment uh, for HIV. And we now have a single tablet therapy, which if taken lifelong uh, on a daily basis, can lead to complete suppression of the virus, which means there is no limit to the patient's health or life expectancy, and they can have sex without passing on the virus. Number two, there has been a recent spike in Glasgow in the homeless community, particularly amongst people who inject drugs and an association with those who inject cocaine, which typically is administered more frequently. And they've been tackling this with a very active program of increased testing, including in emergency departments, finding positive cases in the community and engaging with community and homeless services to administer treatment. Number three, Rebecca advises that other regions don't get complacent as they have seen smaller spikes in other areas. So keep up the preventative measures and consider testing high-risk people, typically IV drug users, when the opportunity arises. But remember, you'll need to discuss this at a local level, particularly in terms of follow-up and ongoing care. And finally, pre-exposure prophylaxis is a combination of two antiretrovirals taken in a single tablet every day. And it is taken by HIV-negative patients and has been proven to reduce the risk of HIV infection through heterosexual or homosexual sex. And it is additional safety net and it does not prevent the risk of spread of other STIs, so you will need to continue other forms of protection. Side effects are minimal, but it can affect the kidneys. So many, many thanks again to Rebecca. Many thanks again to you for listening. Please visit samungos-ed.com for more Uh, educational resources and until next time take care